Hello again, this is Gareth O'Callaghan welcoming you to the fourth episode of my weekly podcast diary. I must admit, I made two attempts to record this yesterday and on both of those attempts, I had to walk away from it. I became very emotional and I became very, very angry that I just had to stop the recording and come back to it today. So by way of a gentle warning, some of you might find the content of this week's podcast upsetting. I certainly found it very, very difficult to talk about yesterday, and I'm sure today will be no exception either. During the week, the report from the Commission of Investigation into the Mothers and Babies Homes of Ireland, a history that spanned over 70 years, was published. It was officially published during the week. It was leaked last weekend. The government claimed the leak was a technical glitch. It wasn't. The government leaked it intentionally. They wanted to get it out into the public domain before the survivors of these homes got their hands on it, before the survivors had an opportunity to read through it, because the government were terrified of how the survivors might react, and deservedly so, if they got their hands on this report before the rest of the country did. And it's worth mentioning here that the government had this report in their hands last October. So once again, we have made the front page of the New York Times, we've been on the BBC, we've been on CNN, we've been all over the world making headlines. 56,000 unmarried mothers, 57,000 tiny little babies. The report only covers a sample, they call it, of 18 of these institutions. I hate the word sample, particularly when it's used in this context. It sounds like some seedy medical experiment. There were many, many more of these homes and institutions all over Ireland. There were hundreds more victims whose voices will never be heard, whose stories will never be told. They have been denied a voice in this report. One of the reasons I became quite angry was that the Commission drew the conclusion from the information they gleaned from the survivors of these homes that none of these girls were forced to enter these institutions. Where did they get that information from? The mind boggles. It just doesn't make sense. They have been listening to information. They have been receiving stories, narratives, evidence from women who spent years in these institutions. And they draw the conclusion that none of these women was forced to enter any of these institutions. The shame wasn't on the shoulders of these young women. It should never have been placed there. The shame belongs with the nuns. The shame belongs with the parents of these girls, the mothers and fathers who threw them out of their home as soon as they found out that they were pregnant. They packed their bag and they rang the local priest who came along occasionally with the local police officer, put the girl into the back of a car and drove her to one of these institutions where she would spend at least three years of her life. There are a number of things that I'd love to know. How were passports prepared so quickly for these tiny babies so that they could be taken to Dublin airport, so that they could be met by wealthy American couples who gave these young babies, and it must be said here, very good, safe, comfortable homes. But what was going on behind the scenes that enabled passports to be prepared, often at a day's notice. Like so many occasions in the past that are now simply referred to as part of Irish history, our sad, sad history, this is probably the greatest cover-up this country 
has ever seen. The Mother and Baby Homes Report will become another episode in the sad history of this country. There's only one difference. It is probably the greatest cover-up of all time. And many people have spent many years covering up what happened. And if we allow ourselves to forget the contents of this report, if we allow ourselves to forget these stories, these women, these brave, brave, broken-hearted women who were mothers, who were looking for their children. Many of these babies were buried. There are no records available. Any records that are available are now beyond reach in many cases of these women. Well, then we are part of that conspiracy if we allow this to remain covered up. We live not too far from one of these homes. The name of the home is Besborough. And if you've never heard of the Besborough Mother and Baby Home, well, can I just put you in the direction of an amazing book? It's a heartbreaking book, full of insight, full of stories of horror, but also it's a story of the power of kindness and hope and of the difference one young woman can make to a great many lives. And the name of the book is The Light in the Window, and it's written by a woman called June Goulding. June took up position in, I think it was 1951, as a midwife in Besborough, the home here in Cork run by the Sacred Heart Nuns. And what she witnessed there was to haunt her for the next 50 years. It was a place of imprisonment and cruelty, a place where women were forced to pick grass on their hands and knees. No shears, no lawnmowers. They had to pick the grass with their fingers. They had had to tar the roads while they were heavily pregnant. It's a shocking book. But throughout the book, June Goulding reminds us of the power of kindness and hope. Many of the girls who shared time in these institutions became each other's support. It's a heartbreaking story, but it is a book that everybody should read. It's by June Goulding, and it's called The Light in the Window. It's really hard to believe that the safety of our children is enshrined in our constitution here in Ireland. That our children are the first priority. Their safety, their health and their education. The survivors of the Besborough Mother and Baby Home believe that many of the missing babies are buried on the land around this home. Now, it's very important to point out here that this home is now the location of a number of very, very important healthcare businesses that have got absolutely nothing to do with the past. But the survivors of Besborough have been pleading for years with the government, with anyone who will listen, to investigate a plot of land. It's not that big a plot of land. It's a field, an enclosed field, just behind the building itself where they believe the bodies of babies lie and have been buried for many, many, many years. Now, it's not going to be too much longer before planning permission is granted so that houses and apartments can be built on this particular plot of land. When those houses are built, whatever lies beneath the surface of that soil is lost forever. So therefore, on behalf of the mothers, on behalf of the survivors who don't have a voice, 
I am pleading with whoever can possibly make this happen to at least examine this land. There have been examinations in the past, but that's way, way back in the 1940s and 50s. More recently, there was an examination, but it's 2021. We have modern technology. We have ways of doing things that we didn't have access to 20 or 30 years ago. So please, if it means holding up progress, if that's what you want to call it, for the sake of humanity, please listen to these women and their families. Remember, they lost their babies years ago. There's no trace of them. There's no records. The nuns have denied knowing anything about a burial plot. Please investigate this plot of land. There's a lot of anger out there at the moment. I wrote a piece on my Facebook page earlier this week. It has been seen by almost 400,000 people. Many of these people are not here in Ireland. Many of these people are expats. They're Irish people who live abroad for many, many years. Some of these people were born in Besbra. Many of them are living wonderful lives. They are living with wonderful families, parents who gave them the opportunity of a new life. But please, let's remember the mothers whose babies can't be traced, whose babies remain lost all of these years. Stop the development that will take place on this land and excavate it if needs be, or at least investigate the possibility that there's more than just soil beneath the surface of this particular plot. While we're on this subject, I really would like us to remember, since it is January, a young girl called Anne Lovett. Many of you will remember way, way back, 37 years ago, this month back in 1984, a young 15-year-old schoolgirl from Granard in County Longford. Anne's story would probably have just slipped into the ether. It might have been very quickly forgotten. Another teenager who becomes pregnant, who has her baby. Anne became pregnant, but Anne kept it a secret, even from many of her school friends in the local secondary school. And on the day she gave birth, she left the secondary school in Granard and walked up and down the main street, past her home, walking aimlessly. God knows what was going through her mind, hoping perhaps that somebody might just reach out and say, let us help you. Instead, she walked to a small grotto of the Virgin Mary, a well-known landmark in the town, where on a wet, miserably cold January afternoon, shortly after school ended, she gave birth to a tiny baby boy who died. Anne collapsed. She was bleeding very, very heavily. And a local farmer spotted her and ran to the local priest's house and said, Father, we need you. The priest's reaction was, you don't need me, you need a doctor. The farmer said, no, Father, we need you. It looks as if Anne is also dying. Anne's funeral, along with the funeral of her tiny baby boy, took place the following weekend. And it was actually a phone call to the Sunday Tribune on the Saturday to a journalist called Emily O'Reilly that turned this story into the national story it became, the story that would never be forgotten. It was on the front page of the Sunday Tribune. And you may remember that Gay Byrne presented The Late Late Show back then in the early 80s on a Saturday night. And it was traditional for Gay towards the end of each Late Late Show that he would pick up the Sunday newspapers. He would quickly refer to the headlines and he had this habit of reading out the headline of one newspaper and dropping it down on the floor beside him and then reading out another one. And he read out the headline on the Sunday Tribune. It was a brief headline talking about this young girl who had given birth to a baby boy and both of them had died. It was Gay's reaction to the story 
on the front of the Sunday Tribune that gave rise to an enormous reaction from women, young girls in similar situations, young unmarried girls who found themselves pregnant. And about two weeks after referring to the front page of the Sunday Tribune, Gay's words were to the effect, nothing much new there. The Gayburn radio show received sacks and sacks of posts. You have to remember, 1984, no social media, no emails, no smartphones, there was nothing. There was the telephone and there was the post office and the post box where you posted your letters and your cards. And the Gayburn radio show received sacks of mail, letters, long letters, personal heartbreaking stories from young women who had given birth to babies who had been thrown out of their homes by their parents, who had run away to London, to England, to get away from the horrors of how the church was treating these individuals, these human beings and their babies, just to get away. And the reaction opened the floodgates. As more and more letters arrived, more and more letters were written. Gay and his team, his brilliant producer, John Cadden, and another brilliant producer, Lorelai Harris, decided the best way to go about reading these letters and acknowledging them was to bring in a group of women who were actors. And each of them, they all sat around a table, a a big, big circular table with microphones in front of them. And each of them took it in turn to read a letter, reading it in the first person as if she was that young woman who had written the letter. And it was a radio show that I, for one, will never, ever forget. I was 23 at the time. Now, I had just come back from England. I had run away to England in 1983 because I just didn't want to be here in Ireland anymore. It was an awful place to be growing up in at that stage. Now, what I left and went to wasn't much better. I actually remember the first day I arrived in London. I was tired. I was exhausted. I didn't have very much money. I was hungry. I remember going into a pub. I wasn't familiar with what was going on in England at that stage in relation to what the provisional IRA were doing on the English mainland. But I walked casually into this pub close to Covent Garden and I put my bag down and sat up on the stool at the counter. It was a busy Sunday afternoon. And a barman came over to me and I said to him, could I have a pint, please? And he looked at me and he said, no. And I immediately thought, well, hang on a sec, I'm 23 Well, I'm almost 23. Uh, Is he looking for identification of my age? So I told him I had my passport in my pocket if I needed identification. And he said, I know where you're from. And I said, well, can I get a pint? No. And I said, why? And he said, did you not read the notice on the window? And I said, no. And he said, get your bag and get out. And I walked towards the door and a couple who were sitting at the window beside the door that I came in through took me aside and said, there's an Irish pub around the corner. They'll serve you there. And it was when I went outside the pub that the sign on the window hit me like a bolt from the blue. Simply it said, Irish are not welcome. That wasn't the first time I saw a sign like that on a pub window in London. Usually it just said, no Irish. But I went around to the Irish pub around the corner and I was made feel very welcome. But back here, we were living in the dark ages. You couldn't buy contraceptives. They weren't legalized till 1986. You couldn't get divorced. If you had a problem with your marriage, you went to the local priest who told you it was part of marriage to actually sort out these problems. If you were a victim of domestic violence, you weren't going to get any support from the local presbytery or most likely the local Garda station. And the notion of leaving your marriage was unthinkable. And that's where that expression, you've made your bed, now lie in it, comes from. 
So let's just for a moment this week remember Anne Lovett. And let's also remember her sister. Patricia was 14 and she died of an overdose three months after Anne died. Let's just remember the Ireland that we no longer live in. And let's remember with respect those who did live through it, those who didn't survive, those who had no choice but to live through it. The story of Anne Lovett's death played a huge part in a major, major national debate on women giving birth outside marriage. And even if some of these women did make it to London, there was an organisation in London that gave the impression that it would support these girls. It welcomed them. It told them it would give them a home. It would give them safety for themselves and for their unborn babies. But in fact, what it was was an organisation that turned them around and sent them packing back home into the shadows of the nuns who ran the mother and baby homes in this country. Anne Lovett died 37 years ago. She was 15 when she died. If she was still alive, she would now be 52. A young mother, possibly a grandmother. Her baby son, who died while she was giving birth, whom she called Patrick, would be 37 years of age now. Most likely, he would have his own children. But because of the vicious monsters who believed somewhere in the back of their poisoned minds that all this was part of God's greater plan, whatever sort of a God that might have been that they forced themselves to believe existed. We have a very, very dark history that not many people feel comfortable looking back on. Most people prefer to forget it. Most people prefer to put it behind them. It's time to move on. No doubt there are many people who are very uncomfortable with the findings of this commission's report over this last week. There are many people still in this country who feel that that report should never have been released, that that investigation should never have been carried out. There are still people who frown upon unmarried mothers. There are still people who don't agree with divorce. And unfortunately, there is still that layer of society that lifts the blinds and peeps out from behind the curtains and watches what the neighbours are doing. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro smartphone is go to the website seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Our health service is here for you this winter and we're taking every step to protect you from COVID-19. Our services are open and working from routine appointments to urgent care. Remember to check your prescriptions and keep a list of your medicines handy. And look out for your Keeping Well This Winter booklet in the post. Visit hse.ie or call HSE Live on 1850 24 1850 for more information. From the HSE. 
Can I thank everybody who left comments on my Facebook page over the last few days in relation to the piece that I wrote on Besborough. And I hope to follow that up over the weekend again with a further piece. Don't forget you can email me. My email address, if you feel like dropping me a line, is garethocallahan2021 at gmail.com. I've received many emails over the last couple of weeks from those of you asking about how I am and asking about how my health is. It's good. Uh, It's not as good as it used to be, obviously. And I have found the last week quite challenging, very difficult, if I'm to be perfectly honest with you. I've spent a lot of it in bed. Um, I'm conscious that with this condition, multiple system atrophy that I was diagnosed with, there's no cure. That's what they keep telling us. But thankfully, I mentioned I'm trying out this treatment, which is inhalation of molecular hydrogen from a hydrogen generator that is very carefully calibrated. It was produced by a company that make these generators for medical treatments. Trust me, this treatment is so beneficial in hundreds and hundreds of different conditions. In 150 or at least over 150 well-known diseases and illnesses. And I'm sure as time goes by, they'll find that it can be of therapeutic benefit to many, many more. Many of you who have emailed me have asked, why can't you get your hands on this sort of treatment here? Some of you who are interested in finding out more about the hydrogen treatments have asked me why it's not available here in this country through GPs or through your consultants or through the hospitals. I think it will be. As I said previously, I believe it will become a very, very prominent form of treatment alongside oxygen. I believe the time will come when it will probably be the number one choice over oxygen for many, many diseases and illnesses. But I do think that that's a long way down the line. All I can say, and I can only speak from my own personal experience, is that I'm benefiting from it. And I have recommended it to quite a number of other individuals who have come back to me and told me that they are also benefiting from the experience of the treatment. While we're chatting, can I just recommend a book to you? It's a book I've just finished reading and it's due to be published. I think it's due to be published on the 26th of January. And it's a book that's called Afraid of the Dark. And it's written by a man called Johnny McCambridge. Johnny was deputy editor of the Belfast Telegraph newspaper for many years. And this is his first book. It is a wonderful memoir of his experiences with mental health, dealing with depression, dealing with self-doubt, dealing with that suicidal ideation, wondering is life worth continuing, wondering is it worth staying alive. And Johnny asked me if I would read the book before it was published. And I'm so grateful that he did. As you know, um, I myself have had experiences down through the years, terrifying experiences of depression and anxiety. And Johnny's book is perfect, I believe. It's a perfect antidote for anyone who is feeling vulnerable at this time of the year. This has been a rotten January for so many reasons. Now, for some reasons, I know it's been a wonderful January. Like, let's face it, we're getting through it and the summer is coming and the vaccine is here and hopefully 2021 will be a much happier, much sunnier and more positive year than last year. 
But some of you have written to me just to tell me about your own experiences with depression. And as you know, I wrote a book called A Day Called Hope many years ago about my own experiences and my own journey beyond depression. But if you're feeling down, whether it's that seasonal affective disorder or whether it's depression or whether it's anxiety or whether it's that feeling of self-worthlessness and hopelessness that so many people can feel, particularly around about this time of the year, if the cabin fever is making you depressed, if the lockdown conditions mean that you can't get outside your hall door, whether you're living on your own or whether you're living with people who are driving you bonkers and you feel depressed. This is a book that will lift your spirit. There are many, many dark chapters in this book that will certainly make you realize that you're not on your own if you are also going through similar circumstances. But I also have to admit that Johnny being the wonderful writer that he is, there are some stories in there that had me howling with laughter. Uh, some very, very funny anecdotes that he tells about his time writing the book. Johnny gave up his job as assistant editor and gave up the wages and gave up the success that went with such a high-powered journalist job. And he decided to become a stay-at-home full-time dad. Debs' wife went out then to continue working while Johnny stayed at home to look after his little boy. It's a mixture of these wonderful stories that make it a book that I highly recommend. And as I say, it's being published on the 26th of January and the name of the book is called Afraid of the Dark. It's written by Johnny, that's J-O-N-N-Y, Johnny McCambridge. Something that has amazed me over the last couple of months is the ingenuity of people and how they have been using this lockdown time to master new crafts, to take on online courses, to advance their own personal development and to become geniuses in brand new ways that they probably never would have had a chance to become if the coronavirus, COVID-19, hadn't locked us in. I'm reminded regularly that a week is a long time in most of our lives at the moment. But having said that, when I look back on recent months, the time appears to have flown. It's reached a point now where I have to almost double check what day it is and then focus for a moment on whereabouts in January I actually am. Mark Bolan, one of my favourite singers from my teenage years, once said, time passes so slowly if you are unaware of it and so quickly if you are aware of it, which makes a lot of sense. So I decided over the last few days to gather together some famous quotations and sayings about the passing of time and about the importance of being yourself, particularly during these strange times, because I'm reminded that it's so easy not just to lose track of time, but to lose sight of ourselves, of who you are. Before all of the lockdown business, many of us were so busy with the jobs that we did that had reached a point where your job title or your chosen profession became who you were. And with the arrival of this virus and lockdown, many of us lost sight of our place in the world. It was almost as though we found ourselves on the outside, uncertain, unsure, wobbly footing, didn't know what to do next. I know for myself that when I gave up work back in August 2018, hard to believe that it's getting on for three years now, I suddenly found myself without a daily purpose. And that became quite a terrifying prospect because I had grown so used to working seven days a week doing something that I absolutely loved doing. And there was no reason why I couldn't have kept doing it for another 10 years. But then unfortunately, I received this diagnosis and that was the end of that. So yes, while this thing I have is a nuisance, it's also been a huge eye-opener for me in that I realize every day I wake something else 
that I appreciate and want to appreciate even more now that I have the time. I have time. I mightn't have very much money, but we get by. But I have time and time is priceless. I remember speaking to a man who was in his final weeks of his life. This is going back some years. He had been very successful and had become extremely wealthy. He worked very hard all his life. And now he was very generous with his wealth, but that didn't stop him from becoming very ill. Now, the man's wealth was right up there at the kind of level that most of us will probably only ever dream of. But none of that money, he explained to me, could ever give him back his health. And he was aware of that. It wasn't even his health that bothered him too much, but time or lack of time. He told me during our conversation he would have given away every cent of his accumulated fortune if he could have just had had a little while longer. He didn't even specify how long he wanted. And this was a man who spent most of his life traveling the world, buying and selling businesses, big businesses, always on the move. There was no such thing as weekends. I have no idea what his family circumstances were, but I do know that he had a family. But what he found very difficult at this point of his life was that his time was dwindling. And this was a word he said he despised all his life, dwindling, which means declining or fading away. He'd been very proud of his success over the years. He was self-made, having come from a fairly poor background. But he worked every day of his life to turn his efforts into successes. And he did. And he employed many people over the years, paying them well. And he donated a lot of money to causes that benefited by his generosity. He was a wonderful man and he had a beautiful way about him. But as he explained to me, he gave his life away to his business and to those who worked for him. I left no time for myself, he told me that day that I spoke to him. I never gave myself a chance to find out who I really was, and now it's too late. I asked him what he would have spent the time on if, by some rare miracle, he was given that extra time, which he wasn't. And I remember he looked at me and then looked away and smiled as though he was summing up all of his life's regrets in that one facial expression that sad smile. I would just love to know what it would be like to have time to myself and not to have to do anything with it, not to have to rush into a meeting or catch a flight or return phone calls or sit and listen to a lot of the nonsense I spent years listening to that I remember little of now. I'd love to just read a book or walk in a forest or stand on the beach. And if I couldn't do any of those things, he said, I'd just be content to stare at the stars on a clear night with my phone switched off and not a sound to be heard. That's the kind of time I want. It's worth nothing on the stock exchange, but it's priceless when you know you can't have it any longer, no matter what you try to do. Once this time is taken away from me, then it's all over, he said. My businesses will be sold on, bought by other people who are no doubt like me in many ways, kind, decent, hardworking, well-intentioned people, but people who will, I have no doubt in years to come, realise that they also wasted so much precious time. And it occurred to me that we all seem to be waiting for something at the moment, waiting to be vaccinated, waiting for the schools to reopen, waiting for life to return to normal. But will everything just go back to normal? I can't see how. We're almost a year into this strange sort of in-between time that seems to have us all on pause. Yeah, sure, it mightn't suit most people to work from their kitchen tables, but the upside of that is that you don't have to sit in heavy traffic for hours every day. The challenging side of it is that you most likely have to entertain young children 
and teenagers who no longer have the discipline of school to keep them busy for most of the day. But the upside of that, you get to see more of them. Most of the time, you don't see them during the week. One of the many lessons in life that I learned over the years is that children grow up and they move on and they morph into a version, sort of a more modified, more updated 2.0 version of you that makes you slowly realise that you're not as significant to them as much as you used to be. Now, that can be a hard lesson to learn. So maybe having that time at home, knowing that they're only in the next room, isn't such a bad thing because it's only for a while. And as the man who had all the money he could ever have wanted told me, we don't get that time back again, ever. I also understand that many parents want the schools to reopen. There are many parents with young children who have additional educational needs. It's very, very difficult, particularly when you're in the house with them all day and all night to manage, to cope. It can be impossible. It can be terrifying. And then, of course, we're not meant to visit other houses. No one's meant to visit us unless they're in our bubble. But is that a bad thing? Of course we want to see each other. It's only natural that you want to hug those you love, but perhaps you can't. But what about all the other people who you were never really interested in seeing that much? Somebody said to me the other day, it's a blessing in disguise in so many ways. Think of all the people you don't get on with. Now you have the perfect excuse to just not see them. You don't have to make an excuse. I'm probably sounding very uncharitable, but I don't actually care. Remember the golden word, time. Why would you want to let people who you feel are wasting your time waste your precious, priceless, valuable time? The downside of that um, actually, now that I think of it, I can't think of a downside to that one. Our health service is here for you this winter, and we're taking every step to protect you from COVID-19. Our services are open and working, from routine appointments to urgent care. Remember to check your prescriptions and keep a list of your medicines handy. And look out for your Keeping Well This Winter booklet in the post. Visit hse.ie or call HSE Live on 1850 24 1850 for more information. From the HSE. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro smartphone is go to the website seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. I asked myself a question the other day. What exactly did I like about my life before COVID-19 arrived? I think in many ways my life was no different to the way my life is now. Maybe that's because I received this diagnosis in 2018. So that was when my life began to change. When we try to think of five things that we liked about our former existence before this virus arrived, well... Uh, I could visit my mother by jumping on the train whenever I wanted to. My mother's in Dublin. 
I'm in Cork. But like so many other people I want to be in contact with, she's at the end of the phone and we talk most days. Of course I miss seeing her. But I actually chat more with her now than perhaps I did before lockdown. I miss bookshops. I have to be straight up here. I love books with a passion and I love browsing. I could lose hours of a day walking around a bookshop. Nothing can replace that. New clothes or new books? Books. Books win every time. Rita Mae Brown once famously said, about all you can do in life is be who you are. Some people will love you for you. Most will love you for what you can do for them. And some won't like you at all. Think about that again. About all you can do in life is be who you are. Some people will love you for you. Most will love you for what you can do for them and some won't like you at all. If you can accept that, then your time is proudly your own. This is valuable time, it's precious time. It's irreplaceable. We will never get it back again. We don't know how long we're gonna be in this space, in this bubble, but I have realized that it is a time of opportunity, depending on what way we look at it. Judy Garland said, always be a first-rate version of yourself and not a second-rate version of someone else. And here's one I particularly love. I found this the other day from none other than the grand old master, William Shakespeare, who said, God has given you one face and you make yourself another. And finally, Balzac, the French novelist, Honoré du Balzac. An unfulfilled vocation drains the colour from a human being's entire existence. I don't believe there'll ever be an old normal again, only because there was never any such thing anyway. Today is a normal day, whether we like to admit it or not. It probably doesn't suit too many people to be cooped up in the house with very little choice as to what you can or can't do. But therein lies the choice. What is it that you can do? as distinct from what you can't do. And that occurred to me during the week. A friend of mine is training right now for the next available marathon he can enter as soon as lockdown is lifted. He still runs between five and 10 miles three times a week, even though he can't go beyond the 5K limit. And he loves it. He tells me that the freedom he has as a result of working from home is the greatest thing that he can think of from a career point of view, because here he is mixing his daily work with his daily marathon training which he could never have done while he was driving 30 miles to work and back every day for the last 15 years. Stevie Nicks famously said, I've learned as time passes, all the things that you're afraid of will come and they will go and you will be all right. It's almost too obvious a statement to have an impact, but it's so true. I've learned as time passes, all the things that you're afraid of will come and they will go and you will be all right. When each of us looks back on 2020, I like to think that most of us will be grateful for having got through it. There are so many who didn't make it through. Grateful perhaps for what we learned from the time we were given to stand back and review where we have come from and whether or not it's worthwhile to keep going that way. Of course, many of us will remember the year with a lot of sadness. There's been a lot of sadness, but there's also been a lot of joy. I'd like to think that when I look back, I'll be grateful for the time I was given to learn more about what life really means beneath the obvious surface that most people spend their entire lives staring at. There's more to life than listening to the demands and expectations of other people. Life is not just the passing of time. Life is the collection of experiences and their intensity. The bad news is that time flies, but the good news is that you're the pilot. So fly the plane the way you want it to be flown and to where you want it to go. Marilyn Monroe said, imperfection is beauty. 
Madness is genius, and it's better to be absolutely ridiculous than absolutely boring. And finally, here's one of my favorites from the poet and artist Jada DeWalt. Don't let others box you into their idea of what they think you should be. A confined identity is a miserable way to exist. Be you and live free. Trust that in living true to yourself, you will attract people that support and love you just as you are. I suggest if you get some free time, and I would imagine you probably have a little bit of that, check out some of the millions of heartwarming quotes that fill the internet. If you look for them simply by Googling them, you'll find something that has almost been written especially for you. Write out one of them each day and put it somewhere you'll be reminded of it, whether that's stuck to the door of your fridge or sitting beside your home PC or laptop or on your bedside table. Sometimes we need to read the words of others in order to feel inspiration that resonates from deep within us. Every single one of us is an inspiration to someone. Each of us has enough inspiration inside us to lift the spirits of thousands. Most of the time, we're just afraid to use it. A lot of the time, we don't believe enough in ourselves to stand up and say how we feel. This is a strange time. For many, it's been the strangest time they've ever experienced. But by being afraid of this time, we're losing out on countless opportunities and ways of learning more about ourselves and those we love. Thank you to each one of you who listens to my podcast diary. It's not a diary as you might expect, but that's one of the many aspects I enjoy about recording it. It's really down to whatever catches my eye or my ear or my mood each week. And if there's anything you'd like to ask, if there's a comment you'd like to make, or you'd simply like to drop me a line, don't forget the email address, garethocallaghan2021 at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for listening. Stay safe, take care of each other, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.